morning. Good to see everyone this morning. Happy Thanksgiving week. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 for our scripture reading this morning. We do have much to be thankful for, especially the great love that God has shown towards us through in Christ. The love which he continues to show to us. And we have so much to be grateful for that our that the Almighty God, the creator of the ends of the earth, is personally engaged in our lives. He gave himself for us and he will guide us through everyday life. We have so much to be thankful for. Not only this week, but every day in that right. I encourage you to continue to pray, especially for the Christmas program. The kids would appreciate your prayers. And uh, let's pray for them and for all who would attend. It's a highlight uh, Sunday of our year to uh, be able to present the message of Christmas. So we continue to bathe that in prayer, if you would. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to read here the first 15 verses. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Let's pray. Father, we are once again thankful to you each and every day for your great love that you've shown towards us. And Father, you exhibited that love to us at the cross of Christ when the Lord Jesus Christ died for us, not for his sins, but for ours, not because he was guilty, but because we were guilty. And Father, you laid on him, your only son, the iniquity of us all, and a greater love has no man than this. And so, Father, we're so thankful today for the life that we have in Christ. Father, you've offered to us freely the gift of the, the forgiveness of sins, the assurance of eternal life, and the bounty of a new life in Christ. Father, thank you that though we had gone astray as your people, as your created people, when we sinned against you, Father, you have drawn us back with cords of love. We're thankful for that. And Father, we pray today as we open your word that you would watch over us once again as we study your word. Give us understanding in the things we would study. May your spirit bring to light the things you would have us to learn. May, you, may your spirit empower us to live the things we learn. And Father, may he as well mold us and make us to be in the image of Christ so that in turn we might shine as lights in this ever-darkening world. And Father, we pray for our world today. We pray for the, the nation of Israel, Father, and all that's going on there, for all who have suffered loss, Father, that you would comfort and uphold them. But Father, may through all this, the world understand that there is a lack of peace and a need for peace, and that peace is found in one place, the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, who can bring peace by bringing peace to men's hearts and lives. And Father, as believers, as we observe the affairs of the world around us, that you might impress upon us the urgency of redeeming the time, 
the urgency of, of getting out the good news, of bringing the, the news of God's truth and God's love to those around us. And so today, Father, as we gather, may you strengthen us to that cause. May you embolden us and, and provide opportunity, Father, and may we live redemptively each and every day. Father, pray for those who have deeds around us. Father, we just pray that you administer those who have had loss, that you would comfort and encourage them. And Father, those who are, have struggles in their lives, Father, may we recognize that you are a very present help, and we're thankful for that as well. And so, Father, we pray today as we study together your word, may you be glorified, may our hearts be settled and ready to hear, may you watch over the speaker and the listener, that your spirit might teach us the things we ought to learn today, we pray in Jesus' name. You can turn to Genesis chapter 34 as we continue in our study here in the book of Genesis. Study of Jacob, Genesis chapter 34. Ever since man fell into sin and his life became corrupted and depraved because of sin, God has been drawing men and women to himself. God has ever been on a course to rectify that, to reconcile man, to restore man uh, to a right relationship with himself. And throughout history, we see there are times that those who trusted in Jehovah, those who did turn to him, were quite rough around the edges. And we're seeing that in our study of these, even the patriarchs here in the Old Testament. And, it can be, and the story of Jacob is about God smoothing out those rough edges. It is the making of a man of God, taking him from, from, from a lump of clay into a beautiful piece of pottery, you could say. And, and that is what God is, has been at work. And we've seen that process here in this story. And we must remember that the Bible tells us that God in his mercy and his grace and his sovereignty and power, he, he uses the weak and incapable. That's the glorious thing in his grace. None of us are ever qualified Instead, God qualifies us, and, and God uses the weak and, and, and enable to accomplish his wills, while at the same time, he works in them and on them to make us the men and women we ought to be. That's one reason when we consider that the work that God is doing to draw mankind individually and mankind as a whole to himself, that is so discouraging when we see nations of the world who are at one time considered Christian, including ours, depart from its roots to step away from its foundations. And because of that, today we see the increase of the various kinds of brutality inflicted on mankind by mankind, and we're abhorred by it. Now, sometimes we attribute this to uncivilized cultures, yet how many, for how many years has even civilized nations killed their unborn, seen an increase in the, in the sex slave trade, and so on? This isn't reserved for uncivilized peoples. It's what, what occurs when people step away from the foundations of the truth of the word of God. And so for you and I, the question is, is where are we on that slippery slope of, of the downward spiral to open depravity? And what can we do about it? Well, we know it is our responsibility as Christians to be serious about our faith. Those who know Christ and have the Bible should stand on it, live it, and share it. And according to what we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, expose the work of dark, dark, darkness. We're to be agents of restraint because the Spirit of God is illuminating Christ through us to this dark and broken world. We know someday, someday when the end times proceed and the tribulation comes that we're told in Thessalonians that the restrainer is going to be taken out of the way. 
which means in the meantime, it's the light that shines through us, the life of Christ that restrains this world when you and I stand for the truth of God and live intentionally for him. And so are we committed to bringing the world the one message of hope, the one thing that can rectify when we ask ourselves what we can do? Because ultimately, God changes lives one person at a time, one heart at a time, and he uses you and I to bring that message of the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to people. Well, in these two chapters we're going to look at today, the chapter 34 and the beginning of chapter 35, we find an account whose depraved actions could be taken right off our own headlines today. But we also find following that God's instructions or alternative way to live for how we ought to live and build a culture that honors God and promotes peace and stability in this broken world we live in. So we're going to go ahead and read chapter 34 and, uh, and then begin to make some observations. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Her soul was strongly his soul was strongly attacked, attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak to him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife, and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it, and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father, and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father, and spoke deceitfully, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to, to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you, if you would become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male is among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not then their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city, indeed, heeded Hamor and Shechem, his son. And every man was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Now it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. 
And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword, took Dinah from Shechem's house, and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, and what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth. And their little ones and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me, and I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a harlot? <coughs> Excuse me. Ugly, 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 isn't it? In fact, God here doesn't comment on this directly. He just records this account. And God was honest when, he, when, he, when it comes to record, recording the history of man. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. He lets the ugliness of the flesh uh, just put, put itself on full display here. We do see at the end of the chapter, in verse 30, Jacob's displeasure, recognizing it as, as, a, as the absolute wrong thing to do. In fact, later in Genesis 49, when Jacob Jacob comments on all his sons. He once again condemns their actions. And, and because of the ugliness here, this expression of the flesh, something that, like I said, could come off our headlines today, he realized that there was a consequence. And here the consequence was making enemies of the other nations around him. And Jacob says, I'm going to be killed and destroyed because of your stupid decision, because of your fleshy decision. And, and he, Jacob expected trouble. He said, you've made me obnoxious. Some of your versions might use the word odious. Some, some versions actually use the word stink. That's what the word means. You made, made me smell bad in the community, supposedly. Now, we recognize in the New Testament that believers are to, are, to, are to give off an aroma, but the aroma is the aroma of Christ. We're to sh let Christ shine through us and, and be recognized in us. But here the stink is because of sin. And the world, he was a fear, fearful that the surrounding nations would come upon them and destroy them. What we do see here, though, is the next chapter is that God is going to intervene. God's going to step in, and he's going to come to the rescue, so to speak. He's going to protect his people. So let's continue to read just the first seven verses here of chapter 35. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Cain, and he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Well, first of all, we see here in this passage that God intervenes for their physical protection. He says it's time to go. He tells them, let's get up and go. Get out of town, first of all. God says, you need to leave this place. And then as they left, we see God also preserved them. In verse 5, it says, the terror of God was upon the cities that were around them. They did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And God somehow in, had in, instilled in their hearts a terror, a fear of, of the God of, Is God of Israel, the God of Jacob, 
here, and we find that throughout the Old, Old Testament. We see, we see those comments made in Deuteronomy chapter 2 when, when God is preparing Israel to enter the promised land and to conquer the promised land. He says this, this day, he says, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven, who shall hear of the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So we don't know how God did this. Maybe he has his own social media ability to put the dread and fear in the hearts of the nations around him, but he, that's what he did. He protected them, and we don't know exactly how that occurred, but they just let them go get away peacefully. And so God intervened once again in his sovereign power and love to protect his people, because really what was at stake here was the preservation of God's covenant, his covenant promises. And one of the core elements of that, of that covenant that God made with Abraham was the promise of a savior, a redeemer, the one who would bless the whole world, which, which is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jacob was the line of Christ. And so when these two young men made this terrible decision uh, to slaughter the city, what was really at stake in the, in, in the, in the counsels of Satan and his battles against God was to destroy the line of the Messiah. That's what, that was at stake. If they were wiped out, God's covenant would have been thwarted. And so God but, that, but God can keep his promises and keep his people, and that's exactly what he did here. Now, we also know here, but recognize as we go on, that God was also concerned for their spiritual preservation as well. Because the, he did not want to see this kind of behavior become normal in their lives. And this passage follows, these instructions that are given here follows, are not circumstantial. Instead, what's really going on here is God is still at work chipping away at the rough edges, smoothing out the rough edges in the lives of his people. And after experiencing this loathsome expression of the flesh, God here gives his men and women a desire to mold and make them instructions on how to overcome the flesh, how to prevent this kind of behavior become, becoming normal in the culture of Israel, how to live as God intends his people to live, which is in peace and stability in life. And so he gives them instructions. And the first thing he tells them when he says, "Go up, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. And what he's saying here is draw near to God because Bethel was the place where Jacob first met God in, in, in a personal way. It, it's a place where God affirmed the promises of the Abrahamic covenant to him. And for Jacob, it rep represented the presence of God. The return to Bethel was a return to God's presence and to live in his presence. And that's why he says dwell here. And, and that's, therefore, when we consider the ungodly culture of that day and of this day, the first step always is, is to return or turn to our God. For those who don't know Jesus, it's a, it's a turning to him to find life, eternal life, to find peace, to find fullness of joy, stability, meaning, and purpose. And, and that's why Jesus says, come unto me. And that's why we're called to the right relationship with him. Because, because for those for each one of us who are born into this life separated from God, God offers a rescue plan, and that is found in the person of Christ. Turn with me, if you will, for a moment to Romans chapter 5, and let's just look at these verses once again briefly. Romans chapter 5, here where we see the expression of God's desire to rescue us. Verse 6 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. What does it mean to be without strength? It means to be without spiritual strength, without the ability to, to save ourselves, to rescue ourselves. That's mankind in the raw, in the flesh. Because of sin, we are without strength. And you know that's, this verse should be per fulfilled pretty obviously when you look at, at the success of self-help programs. 
how, how, how high the failure rate is in, in programs to rescue us from various kinds of dependencies and behaviors because there's no strength in the flesh, the Bible says. But when we are at without strength, in due time, Christ died. When the time was right, he died for us, the ungodly. Verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet per perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends his own love towards us, and that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's intervention for our spiritual need. When we were without strength, when we were sinners, Christ took our sin, took our place, and died for us to rescue us. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, and that's how a person becomes justified is through the blood of Christ. In fact, verse 1 of this chapter introduces that topic when it says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, having been justified, we shall be saved from wrath through him. What wrath? The wrath that, our, that is due upon our sin. Because he took our, his, our wrath on himself. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, okay, so we're weak, we're sinners, we're enemies. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Reconciliation, we see that term in here. God is seeking to reconcile the world to himself. And the first step in God's program to 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 restore mankind to himself, is reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 says God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Notice God doesn't have to move in this process of reconciliation. There's no meeting in the middle with God. It's mankind that has to be restored to a right relationship with God. And God initiated that reconciliation. He initiated that effort in sending his son. Even when we were weak sinners and enemies, Christ died for us so that we could be restored to a right relationship with him. And so the first thing God, going back to Genesis 35, God tells us here is to turn to him. Turn to him. That's where help comes from. That's the answer for the world today is to find life and direction and the, and, and the truth of life in him. And for those of us who trust in Christ as Savior, it is, it is, it is to increase, to grow in our faith, to turn or return to him in our walk. 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 4.1 says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. God wants us to abound more and more and more and more as he, wears, as he works on the rough edges of our lives to make us more like himself. And that happens when we come before him in, in, in reading and hearing and meditating on the word of God. And that's why back in Genesis 20, 35, he didn't say just go to Bethel. He said, he said dwell there. Maybe that's a key word, dwell there. Make your home there. And it indicates live, live your life in the presence of God. That's what he's saying here. For you and I today, that's defined in Colossians 3.3, 3, where it says your life is hid with Christ in God. And as Christians, our identity is not only to be Christ ones because Christ lives in us, but he also is the essence of life. Where life is to revolve around him. You see, Jesus is not just the spoke of our one of the spokes in the wheel of our lives that we occasionally give attention to. He's the hub, isn't he? He's the center, and he ought to be the center. It's in him we live and move and have our being. It's in, it's in him we find life. And that's why John 15 describes this dwelling in his presence as abiding in him. See, we don't have to be like in the Old Testament where they had to go where the presence of God was. We have the presence of God living in us if you're a believer. Christ lives in our hearts. He dwells in our hearts by faith. 
And we just have to make the decision, as John puts it, in, as Jesus put it in John 15, to abide, to live there, to dwell there, to find, the, find our life fully in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's sometimes hard to get your, wrap your mind around, isn't it? But, but you and I ought to yearn as believers to understand these personal truths that, of the living in the presence of Jesus. In Galatians 2, it says, My life is not I, but my life is hid with Christ. Not I, but Christ lives in me. Here we, in Colossians 3, our lives are hid with Christ in God. And we should yearn to understand what it means to, to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ because Christianity is not just a matter of do's and don'ts and rules and obligations and going to church once in a while. It's a life. It's a sharing in the life of Christ. And that's something we should yearn, yearn for. And that's what God's directing them here in Genesis 35.1. Go to Bethel and dwell there. Make your life there. Make it normal as a believer to find your life in your relationship with God. Well, then he goes on to give them some action steps that they should take if they're going to live as God's children, as children of God, as the people of God. In verse 2, Jacob said to his household and to all who are with them, first of all, put away the foreign gods. First thing he tells them, action steps. If you're going to get serious about your faith, about walking with Jehovah, finding your life in him, put away the foreign gods. Now, these gods may have been those that Rachel had taken from her father Laban, if you remember that account she had stolen from her father, or they may have been idols they acquired while in Shechem, while in living in the midst of the ungodly. Whatever they were, they apparently had assimilated into that idol culture somewhat and had, and had them in their homes, and, and, and here God says, put them away. Or Jacob says, put them away. And the word foreign here, I think I like the word, the way King James Version just translates it strange, strange gods. They aren't foreign in the sense that, oh, they're just from a different culture, they're, they're from a different nation. They're foreign in the sense that they're foreign to the life of God's people. They're strange to the life of God's people. They're not the normal object of worship of God's people. They, they don't belong in the life of a believer. That's what he's saying. And one commentator pointed out, that today believers often have strange gods today. We have strange gods. They might be the gods of covetousness, recreation, sensual pursuits, our houses, our occupations, our lifestyles, fill in the blank. And these things become strange gods when they capture our attention and loyalty, when we just ha live for them, or we, as we say, we die without them, when they become so important to us that they hinder us from honoring and putting God first in our lives. They become objects of our worship and our loyalty. That's what idol worship is. And we have strange gods today that need to be put away. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a, great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance a race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy who was, that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. And so God challenges us to put him away. Those things that, that take the place of God in our lives, that have our first consideration, our first loyalty, put him first. Put away the foreign gods in our, in our lives. Next thing he tells them here, then, is purify yourselves. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves. The, the idea of cleansing 
before coming before a holy God in, in, in a relationship with God is found throughout the Bible. You know, later in the next book in Exodus, we find that under the law, physical cleansing was required before worship and service. That type of consecration and cleansing we find throughout the scriptures. In the New Testament, we might say this is similar to or same as confessing our sins. 1 John 1, 9 tells the believer in his relationship with God, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's not a salvation verse, that's a relational verse. But when we wrong God, when we offend God, when we sin against God, we, we need forgiveness and cleansing. And he calls it a cleansing. And that's the idea here, purify yourselves. Maybe in this account in Genesis 35 extends beyond physical cleansing to the, to the attitude of heart they had towards God. Because confessional is relation, relational. When we sin against God, we are to make it right. The word confess means to say the same things. It means to agree with God. It means to simply say, yeah, that was wrong. It's kind of like when you discipline your kids. You don't discipline your kids just because you're angry. You discipline your kids because they need to see it was wrong. And the objective is for them at the end of that event, after you give them your lugs and hugs and kisses, is that they would see, I was wrong, mommy and daddy. And that's how God wants. That's what confession means. But God's response to confession is to forgive. He forgives us. He, puts, he doesn't hold a, hold a grudge over us. He forgives and forgets. But he also cleanses. See, forgiveness implies an offense that is sin that has been committed, that has now been forgiven. Cleansing indicates that sin stains our lives. And God cleanses when we confess. That's an amazing thing. He, he, he cleanses us so that we might be in a place where we could enjoy him once again. Now, we also recognize that confession involves repentance. And the word repent means to change one's mind. It have, uh, and obviously, if we're going to confess something sincerely, it means that you had come to a change of mind and heart about it, and you recognize it was wrong. It's a re that's the uh, simplicity of repentance. <coughs> trying to find a mic that would cover it. So in order to confess, we must have a change of heart. We must humble ourselves. Confession is not simply a shallow ritual we go through in order to feel better about ourselves. And some believers view it that way. Instead, it's a heart change. That's true biblical repentance about our actions and recognizing them as sin, coupled with a desire to not repeat it. That's what repentance is. It's, it's a desire to be delivered from the sin that's ensnaring me. I remember when I was a teen, a friend of mine's um, had some older sisters around. We were sitting around the front yard, and I remember them making plans for the weekend, and they they looked at one another, were deciding, should we go to confession before or after we party? That's just a summary. And I just thought, isn't that corny? As a young person, isn't that funny? Yeah, let's see, should we go now or should we go afterwards? That's not confession, is it? That's not what the Bible's talking about. Confession is a heartfelt regret for what we have done in agreement with God. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. See, that's what confession is. It's, it's the intent to not only to admit it, but to escape it, to forsake it. And God then has mercy and forgives. And so he tells them here, in their steps back to God, first of all, in verse, verse 1, dwell in the presence of God. And then he tells them to put away those foreign gods, those objects of worship that come between you and your God. And thir thirdly, he says to purify yourselves. Confess your sins. Make sure your heart is right with God. 
Next thing he says then is change your garments. Change your garments. I can picture some young grandson of Jacob saying, Mommy, why should I change my clothes? I just put clean ones on this morning. <laughs> He's not talking about clothes, is he? He's talking about their, their appearance. That, they, that their clothing had the appearance of the ungodly culture around them. Now, it may have been represented, some of their clothing associated with their idol worship and their ungodly lifestyle, but the idea here is their appearance of living like the ungodly. They had apparently had assimilated and compromised with the culture of the ungodly, their lifestyle, their pursuits. And we know that God has always called his children to walk different than the world walks. We march to a different drumbeat, different instructions. It's not that we try to be different. We're just willing to be different because we follow the truth and concepts and principles of God's word. And so the question always has been, what garments are believers wearing? Are we wearing those of the world or those that are are taught, taught by God in his word. And here, here God says, change them. Rid yourselves of that appearance. You know, and that's, we see a little bit of note of that back in chapter 34 in this sordid tale of the invitation by Shechem to assimilate into their culture. That's in essence what the conversation was. In verse 9, he invites them to intermarry with them. And we know God condemns intermarriage with the unsaved. He says, let's, let's just be one people. Let's intermarry. You know, there's going to be a lot of advantages if we just get along and accept each other, was the philosophy of the day. Sounds good, but it's not God's will. In verse 10, he says, dwell with us. Dwell with us. Make your home here. Well, that's, it's interesting. God used the same word when he says, dwell in Bethel. Dwell in the presence of God. Make your home here. Get comfortable here, he's, he's, he tells them. Do trade, you know, acquire possessions, you know, do your commerce here. Just enjoy all life has to offer here with us. And then later he says in his discussion with his people, we can all be one people. You know, we can be one big happy nation and family and all get along. Let's just forget our differences and accept each other. Well, let's flip ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's see what God says about this to Israel before they enter the promised land later on in their life with Jehovah. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, this, is, this, this instruction was given as Israel embarked on the, um, uh, the Holy Land and ca capturing the promised land that God had given to his people. And sometimes we look at that and say, why did, why did God use Israel to displace these nations? Well, we had seen, and we mentioned this, I think, a few weeks back, that God had given the people of Canaan over 400 years to turn to him. But because of their exceeding wickedness, God was going to use Israel to judge them. And while he accomplished his will of providing for them the Holy Land, and this is his instructions in verse 1. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gagashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And so the anger of the Lord 
will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a special people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for, the, for you were the least of all peoples, and because the Lord loves you, and so on. Here. See, they were to be... They were to destroy every religious remnant of the peoples. They were to be separate and distinct. They were not to intermarry. And so going back to Genesis 35, this discussion in chapter 34 was a temptation. You know, if you want to live peaceably, let's just get along, accept each other, let's, it's inter, let's intermarry, let's assimilate into the culture, and everything will be hunky-dory. And God used this event to teach Israel otherwise. Instead, he says, change your garments. The New Testament believer, we're told in Ephesians chapter 4, to put off the old man and put on the new. There we find another garment illustration. To put off the clothes of the ungodly, the clothes of the flesh, and put on the clothes of the new man. That's our privilege and responsibility to walk in the spirit rather than walking in the energies and directives of the flesh. And so he's telling them here in Genesis 35, be influenced by godly influences. Put on the truth of God in your walk. And then in verse 3, he continues this instructions when they, when, they, when they say, let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress. So they were going to go there, and they're going to build an altar. An altar represents not only worship, but also consecration. They were identifying God as their God and themselves as his people. And they were going to go to worship. You know, and today somewhat Christ worship is, in Christianity is somewhat confused today. We think worship is merely singing emotional, emotionally stirring songs about my love for the Lord. And while that may be an element, worship is deeper than that. It's more than that. It's a heart response to the truth of God. It's an orienting to the person of God. It's a recognizing who God is in all his glory and wonder and all his goodnesses to you. That's what worship is. It, it may involve singing, it may not. Singing is just an expression of worship. It's not worship itself. Worship is a, emanates from the heart, and it involves humility. If you will, turn to Isaiah chapter 6, if you would, please. Isaiah chapter 6. And I think here in the book of Isaiah, we find here this element of worship. Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of the robe filled the temple. So he saw a vision of the Lord. And above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six rings. The two covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And they cried one to another, said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door was shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, and so Isaiah sees this vision of the person of God. And, you know, when we read the word of God, we're, God is seeking to impress upon us his glory. That's what we see in the word of God. We see treasures of the person of God, glorious aspects of his love and grace and goodness to us. And, and Isaiah's response then is in verse 5, he said, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphims flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, 
This has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. And I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here my send me. Well, see, we see first of all that worship here involves humility. And seeing the awesomeness of God brought humility to, to Isaiah. He said, woe is me, I, I'm a sinner. I, admit, I dwell in the midst of sinners. I've seen the king. And it also then involves confession and purification. His sins were taken away. His sins were purged in verse 7. And lastly, it involves consecration. When God says, I've got a job to do, and Isaiah's first at the head of the line says, I'll go, I'll go. If there's a work of God to be done. See, this, see worship begins with a, with a recognized recognition of who God is and his awesomeness and his glory and his wonder as he deals with his people. Back to Genesis 35, we, re we realize that this all began with movement. Verse 4 tells us here that they gave Jacob all the foreign gods, which were in their hands and their earrings and so on. In verse 5, they journeyed and they went. In verse 6, they came to Bethel. Verse 7, they built an altar there. See, they made the decision to act. Oftentimes, when we come before God and we read his word, when we sit in a Bible study or a church service, God sometimes puts his finger on our hearts and we, we, we see something enlightening, instructing, convicting. And this next step is to make the decision. Am I going to follow? Am I going to yield, heed the word of God? They put away their foreign gods. They changed their appearance. Appearance. They changed direction, and they, and they pursued the things of the living God. These were deliberate steps. And the question for us is, will we be like them in response to the Spirit of God when he teaches us? For the lost, will we by faith turn to Jesus as our Savior from sin and rejoice in the forgiveness and cleansing that we receive? And as believers, will we draw near to him? We respond. See, God's in the business of smoothing out the rough edges in our lives. But it takes a response. Nothing would have been accomplished if Israel had not responded to the directions that God had given them. But because of that, God continued to make his people more and more like himself. And, and, and as a result, enjoy the great blessings of living life according to the truth. And that's what God wants for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this example, Father, you've set before us. It's a, it's a terrible, chapter 34 is a, a sort of terrible, obnoxious example father of what the flesh is like at its worst yet father you in your patience and your love have given us instructions on how to build right lives a right culture a right family and father may we take heed to those things that you tell us to do in our lives may we make those deliberate decisions that would put you first that would put away the foreign gods that would purify our hearts father and that would put off the uh, garments of the world and that would define our lives as hid with Christ in God. So, Father, take these things today and press upon our hearts. May we be willing to be directed by your Spirit in these things. Now we pray in Jesus' name.